Gracious me, I have quite a show for you today. Um, it's really going to be, this is honestly one of the most important shows that we've done in a while. And the reason for that is, I'm going to lay out in no uncertain terms why in the primary you should support Bernie Sanders and not Elizabeth Warren. And it's really not even a close competition between the two of them. Um, let me jot something down real quick. While this is on the top of my head, I have to jot something down for the upcoming segment. Okay. Now, the reason why I feel like it's necessary to do this segment is, number one, a poll just came out that uh, showed Elizabeth Warren beating Bernie Sanders in Iowa. Now, is that something that we should be terrified of? Well, not necessarily, because it's one poll. And, you know, it could be an outlier. Apparently, Bernie's internal numbers are much better than that poll indicates. But even in the national average now, Elizabeth Warren has just edged out Bernie Sanders. So it's time to have this real conversation. And um, I'm a little frustrated with some fellow um, left-wing commentators who are not, in my opinion, not being totally straightforward about the Bernie versus Elizabeth Warren split. So we're going to talk about all that. And... um, I I think it's a really important segment. I'll I'll try to make it uh, very shareable so, you know, you can can give it to all your your friends who are on the fence or all people you know who are supporting Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. Uh, Now, listen, I'm going to make it as substantive as possible. I'm not interested in sniping for personal reasons. Um, I have nothing against Elizabeth Warren personally. 
but to me it comes down to uh, policies, record, and strategy. Those are the most important things when picking a a candidate. Um, What are their policies that they're proposing? What's their record? And what's their strategy to get it implemented? Okay? So we're going to... We're, I'm going to lead with that story in just a second, and then uh, as we move along here, I got a lot more for you. There's this big scandal about how uh, Trump asked the president of Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden. Uh, I have a very contrarian take on that, and for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you already know what I said, uh, but I will dive deeper into it, and I'll give you guys some amazing specifics that are kind of being hidden, um, and then we have... Chris Salizza may have broken the dislike record on, for a CNN YouTube video going after Bernie, and it was embarrassing. Also, you know, big news that wasn't big news is that we're now sending troops to Saudi Arabia. You would think that that would be bigger news, but there was a collective yawn, and it was barely mentioned in mainstream media. And we have another Democratic uh, contender, well, not really a contender, but a Democratic politician who's running for president who's dropping out. So there is a lot of stuff to get to today. It should be a really interesting show. Without uh, further ado, let's get started and let me set this up for you. So I'm going to do a segment here for you, which is the top 10 reasons why you should vote for and support Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary. Now, I want to be clear about something up front. This is specifically for people who you know, fancy themselves a social democrat or a democratic socialist. If, if that's your ideology, then I really hope you'll watch this video, you'll pay attention to this video, and, uh, you know, you'll see why this is really an empirical question. This is really an objective question. There's not much room for, you know, subjectivity. This isn't like picking your favorite flavor of bagel or something. It's not arbitrary. So um, we're going to get into that. Now, also, let me say... I have, for people who might have stumbled across this video who are actively supporting uh, Elizabeth Warren at this moment, I got nothing against you. I got nothing against her. Um, Again, I just want to lay it out in a very clear, digestible way because, in my opinion, as somebody who's been following politics for quite a long time, um, when you're picking a candidate, the three most important things, their proposed policies, so what do they want to do, Their record, which is what have they done, also an under-discussed thing, which is massively important, their strategy. How will they go about getting said things implemented? And then obviously you could also throw in there a a very basic thing like honesty. Um, But really those are the four criteria that make the most sense in my mind. Um, Policies, record, and strategy being so just vitally important. And um, I guess it's a little frustrating to me that I stumble across many people who none of those things are the things that they're actually voting on. I tweeted something the other day that went like semi-viral where I asked people, rank your top five candidates at, like as if we had ranked choice voting. And you'd be surprised. So everybody who's been listening to this show for a long time, they had their candidates and they had a logic to, that made sense as to, oh, this is why I want this one, number one. This is why I want this one, number two. But then when the tweet, you know, expanded beyond just the people who were already part of the Secular Talk audience, there were things that you just simply could not, you know, have an understandable, ideological, 
policy-driven reason for why they had the list the way they did. And I'm talking about people who were like, well, you know, number one, uh, Elizabeth Warren, number two, Kamala, number three, uh, Mayor Pete. It's like, well, hold on now. You're picking candidates who are representing very different parts of the political spectrum, and you're hopping over other candidates who nominally agree with the person you have in first a lot more. That simply makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense if you're using any kind of logical, understandable criteria to determine who you want to vote for. So anyway, without further ado, let's jump into it. These are the top 10 reasons why if you have a a social democratic or democratic socialist ideology, you should support Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren. And I'll even go as far as to say it's not even that difficult a choice. It's really not. They're not the same. And honestly, guys, they're not even similar. That's not to say, that's not to say that, you know, she's not significantly better than 90% of the other candidates, because she is. But that is to say that there's a world of difference between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So number one, and a lot of people don't remember this, she voted for Ben Carson to be the head of housing and urban development. Now, After a giant, gargantuan, legendary political backlash from everybody who was a supporter of hers, she flipped in the next round of votes. But in the first round of voting, she thought, yeah, Ben Carson for the head of housing and urban development. Why? I have no earthly idea, and neither do you. And that's incredibly concerning because – Every now and then, she'll throw something at you that's out of left field. You're like, whoa, 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 what have you done? Excuse you? Ben Carson for that housing and urban development? That is the simplest no vote of all time. So the lesson we take away from this is either poor political instincts, where every now and then she wanders into a minefield, or, and I actually think this is a little more likely, um, her instincts aren't necessarily that bad, but it's so easy to talk her out of, the position that she would originally come to, which is usually not that bad. And another good example of this is um, she was asked, hey, this was right after we got the news from Donna Brazil, where Donna Brazil said, yeah, the Bernie supporters are kind of right. The DNC was acting as an arm of the Hillary Clinton campaign, and they weren't being fair to, to uh, Bernie Sanders. And so Elizabeth Warren was asked on TV on, I think it was either CNN or MSNBC, so was the primary rig, and she was like, well, yeah, of course. It's <laughs> just super simple, obvious, and, you know, everybody on the left was giving her credit, like, oh, good, you're recognizing something that they don't want you to recognize in Washington, D.C., and you're correct. Well, fast forward a few days later, she goes out and she's, I misspoke. I misspoke. It wasn't rigged. Rigged is too strong a word. So what that is is her instincts were correct. Then she got behind closed doors. Her staffers lashed into her, and she immediately flipped her position to the wrong position, which shows either bad political instincts or it's easy to coach her out of her good political instincts because she'll listen to her advisors, and her advisors, as Democratic advisors have shown us for the past three or four decades, are terrible. So that's reason number one, a random vote out of nowhere for Ben Carson to be the head of housing and urban development which shows like every now and then she'll drop a bomb on you and you're like, whoa, whoa, what what did you just do? Why? Why did you do that? That's not something you see Bernie Sanders do. He never surprises you like that. Reason number two, one of these candidates wants to fully eliminate medical debt, $81 billion worth of it, which is all of it, and one of these candidates doesn't. Now, that's not a little thing. That's not a little thing. 
honestly, we could have a, a, a long conversation on this issue alone. Bernie totally outflanks Elizabeth Warren and is just eons better. Because there are over 500,000 Americans that go bankrupt as a result of medical bills. Medical bankruptcies is not a thing in other developed countries. So one of the candidates says, let's uh, totally eliminate medical debt. And the other one hasn't said that. That's huge, guys. That's not little. Number three, one of them wants to eliminate all student loan debt. The other one doesn't. The other one has a plan to eliminate some student loan debt, but it ain't all of it. So that's another giant difference. And what you're going to see here is a trend of Elizabeth Warren doing what honestly was one of Obama's biggest flaws, which is concede up front a little bit. Because obviously the Republican position is going to be, how about we eliminate absolutely none of it and you piss off? That's going to be their position. So when you start your, the negotiation from you saying, okay, let's only eliminate some of it, you already conceded up front. And you're much less likely to get any change at all. There's an old saying, if you shoot for the stars, you might reach the moon. You know, this is, all, this is a, a dynamic that we see is vitally important, even in something like when you go to purchase a car, where you want to go into, into the negotiation repping your position. If it said, let's say it's a used car, it says $10,000 on the sticker, you want to go in there and say, I'll give you six. You don't want to go in there Elizabeth Warren style and say, maybe I'll give you nine. No, you want to negotiate the proper way. So, again, this isn't a close issue. She doesn't want uh, to eliminate all student loan debt. He does. Giant. Okay, what are we on now, the fourth one? I'm going to forget the count here, and that's okay, because this is in no particular order but it's really important. Um, one of these candidates voted for Trump's incredibly bloated military budget, and one of them didn't. And just so everybody knows, this military budget was so gargantuan and so obnoxious. It had more money in it than Donald Trump was even asking for. I think they want, he asked for a $60 billion increase, and they gave him an $80 billion increase or something of that effect. Maybe even been a $100 billion increase. But Elizabeth Warren voted for a gargantuan criminal military budget to go to our man-baby-in-chief, a guy who shouldn't have his finger anywhere near that red button, a guy who shouldn't be in control of a military. You would think the logical position would be, hell no, I'm not voting for this guy to have be the commander-in-chief of this even larger military than it was before. Why would I give him billions more to play around with? Well, she voted yes on that military budget. Bernie Sanders did not. So important, guys. One of these candidates has raised a tremendous amount of money from the military-industrial complex and done favors for them. Guess what, guys? Raytheon is headquartered in, uh, in Massachusetts. So, you know, there's been extensive reporting on how Elizabeth Warren has indeed done favors for Raytheon and the military-industrial complex. The other one has not. The other one has not raised money from them and not done any favors for them. Um, the next, one of these candidates waffled on Medicare for All until very recently, and the other one never has. So why do I say waffled on Medicare for All? What does that mean? It means that up until very recently, Elizabeth Warren, even on uh, TYT, she went on there and she 
made very clear to Jenk that, uh, oh, no, see, what you need to understand is Republicans bad, Democrats good, and you have all these plans that all these different Democrats have, and the core of it is the same, which is we want to get universal coverage. So, you know, whether it's Medicare for all or Medicare for all extra or Medicare for America or a public option or any of these, these are all, oh, my God, the core of it is so wonderful, and the Democrats are fighting for the right thing and the Republicans are fighting for the wrong thing. Now, that is, if you follow this stuff closely, you know that that is just factually untrue, that 90% of the health care plans proposed by other Democrats are simply attempts to continue to protect the profits of the health insurance industry and the status quo. It's let's do some tweaks around the edges and maybe get a couple more people coverage, but we're still going to have the core of the system be for-profit health insurance companies existing and controlling the markets. And, of course, screwing people over because that's what they do. Their whole business model is, you know, the more people I deny care, the more money I make. So having the profit motive involved in health insurance is a problem in and of itself. Now, recently, her rhetoric, especially in debates, has been much more strongly in favor of Medicare for All, and that's her trying to assuage left-wing fears to try to say, no, 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 I'm, to- I'm, I'm totally like this guy Bernie, right? I mean, the Medicare for All, sure, sure. She released her specific plan, guys. I kid you not. There's not a single place where it says single payer, which, by the way, is exactly what Medicare for All is, a single payer. The government is the single insurer. doesn't say that anywhere in her bill, and it also uses the weasel words of increased access to health care. So now you might think that's a small thing. I do not. When one candidate waffles on Medicare for All and the other one never has, that tells me she's less likely to pursue it, but even beyond that, Even if she does pursue it, it's not like she's going to waste a lot of political capital and really go to the mat to try to get it implemented. She's already signaled up front, I'm willing to give away the farm and go to a lesser bill, which she thinks might have a better chance of passing, because, hey, all the Democrats are at the same position anyway, right? All these plans are pretty good anyway, right? No, they're not. Either the Bernie bill or the Jayapal bill, which are both different versions of Medicare for All single payer, and that's it. Those are the only ones that are really going to fundamentally change our health care system. Um, one of these candidates is taking big money in the general. The other one is not. Now, this is one that really blindsided a lot of people. But, you know, it's what she said. Again, this was on TYT. She, she unveiled this wonderful plan about, you know, how big money is destroying our politics and corruption is a giant problem. And what she proposed was a very good bill, and what she took was a very good pledge. And she said, I'm not going to take any big money donors. Um, but she said, but I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. So after I'm done not taking big money in the primary, when I get to the general election, I'm going to take big money. Now, let me explain why th- this is a deal breaker. Because the dynamic that she admits exists is, oh, that's corruption. The influence of big money in politics and corporate money and billionaire money, that's all corruption. Because that's the corporations and the billionaires and the rich folks buying influence, getting politicians to do their bidding because they've given them campaign contributions. So when they make a phone call, the politicians are much more likely to listen and implement the agenda of the rich donors as opposed to the people. She acknowledges that that dynamic exists. But, she says, in the general, I'm going to partake in it. 
But if you admit that dynamic exists, it doesn't just magically go away in a general election. So it's honestly, it's like a next level embarrassing of her to make this argument because she's trying to do some weird middle ground to try to say, oh, me, oh, the left loves me, but also let me virtue signal to the centrists to say, I'm, I'm a serious candidate and I'm willing to play by the rules that exist already. So she's trying to do both things at once, but she ends up making herself look ridiculous because you already agreed to the premise that the left has argued all along, which is that big money is a corrupting influence, except all you're saying is, I'm going to take it in the general, but just trust me that it won't affect me in the same way it affects others. But if you agree the dynamic is there, you're not magically above it, <laughs> and it doesn't magically change in the general because you want it to or because you want to beat Trump. Maybe the way to beat Trump is to be principled. Maybe the way to beat Trump is to actually believe in this left-wing vision and argue for this left-wing vision, and you don't deviate or run to the center or do any goofy things like go back on your principles in order to try to get that outcome. The next one. And actually, you know what, and this is all kind of part of the same thing, and we're going to do a deta more detailed story on this in a second, but she did a giant accounting trick to raise big money before she denounced the big money. So in other words, in 2018 for her Senate race, she went around raising money, knowing she was going to run for president in 2020, raised extra money. And then when nobody was looking, she transferred $10.4 million of the big money she raised a couple years ago into her presidential campaign. Now, she had already made the announcement, I'm not taking any big money in this, in this primary election. But she already raised all the big money in 2018 for 2020 and then just transferred the money. So apparently there are a lot of big donors behind the scenes who are like, wow, you're really full of it. That is an incredibly sleazy trick. And it's true. That's exactly what she did. Um, she also, oh, wait, what? There was one other issue with big money that I'm, I'm blanking on. But anyway, um, I digress from that because this, this is honestly enough. So we know she says, I'm going to raise big money in the general. She's pretending in the primary I don't raise big money. But you did in 2018 and then just transferred the funds. I mean, this is honestly, arguably even sleazier than the Democrats who are centrist and corporate up front, because at least they're being honest. At least they're saying, no, I'm going to take the money the entire time. That's what I'm going to do. Whereas you're trying to pretend now and act like I'm better than them, but really your fundraising practices are just as gross. And she's been meeting behind the scenes as well, trying to assuage the fears of the Democratic establishment, saying, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm serious. I'm not like this guy, Bernie. And Bernie's kind of hostile with them up front because he doesn't agree with them. And he knows that they're stopping real change in this country. So not good, really not good. Um, and then the next one is she didn't endorse Bernie in 2016 when on paper, ideologically, she agrees a lot more with Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton. She didn't endorse Bernie. So what does that tell you? It tells you there are deeper layers of analysis going on where she's kind of embodying that Hillary Clinton line of, I have a public position and a private position. She's willing to play Machiavellian politics. What you see is not what you get. And then why are we supposed to trust you? 
there were articles about how the Hillary Clinton campaign told Elizabeth Warren, we're going to vet you to potentially be VP. And that may have been their chess move to get her to butt out of the election and not endorse Bernie Sanders. But she didn't have to fall for it. She could have endorsed Bernie Sanders. Now, the argument that's slightly less against Elizabeth Warren here is she thought Bernie had no chance. Therefore, let me just stay out, endorse Hillary in the general, and then maybe, you know, I can influence from within to try to push them in a further left direction. That's the kindest possible interpretation. But either way, she wasn't honest and she wasn't upfront in the 2016 primary, and she didn't endorse somebody who on paper she ideologically agrees much more with. And that's something that a lot of people have never really gotten over because it shows you don't really have the courage of your convictions and you're not as principled as you're acting like you are. Um, and then here, here are the final things, and I think this is, this, is mo this is really important. This might be the most important, okay? Elizabeth Warren fully embraces the language of bipartisanship as opposed to class struggle. And she also has said stuff, again, on TYT, very damning interview she's done there. She said to Jenk one time, quote, allow me to make a spirited defense of Jill Manchin. Here's why this is vitally important. When I interviewed Bernie, I asked him very, in a very straightforward way, will you use executive orders wherever possible to get your agenda implemented? Regardless of what mainstream media says, they're going to call you a tyrant and a dictator. Regardless of what the Republicans say, they're going to say the same thing. Even many corporate Democrats are going to say, ah, oh, you're using too much executive authority. This is a unitary authoritarian theory that you're operating under. Bernie didn't hesitate and he said, absolutely, I'm going to do that. The other thing I asked Bernie is, will you support primary challenges against Democrats who are obstructing your agenda, which is the agenda of the American people? Will you actively campaign against and use the bully pulpit against all of these obstructionist Democrats who are going to say, no, I don't want Medicare for all, and I'm going to vote against it, even though 70% of the country is in favor of it and 85% of my own party is, is in favor of it. I, I don't care. I'm going to be, vote against Medicare for all. I'm going to vote against, you know, whatever it may be, fill in the blank, um, free college, even though 60% of the country wants that as well. I'm going to try to, uh, you know, keep us in all these foreign wars. Will you fight people even in your own party politically? He didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely, I'll do that. Not even a question. When Elizabeth Warren says, allow me to make a spirited defense of Joe Manchin, do you think she's going to actively work to primary Joe Manchin? Do you think she's going to know how to apply political pressure to him to either force him to vote for Medicare for all or actively use the bully pulp against him to get him out of there and then whoever replaces him can get Medicare for all and vote for Medicare for all? Do you think she's going to do that? The answer, it's not, it's not even a question. The answer is 100% absolutely no. Joe Manchin will be able to vote however he wants to vote. He can block Elizabeth Warren's entire left-wing agenda, and she's not going to do anything about it. Guys, we had a president like that. We already had a president like that. And you know what? We got tweaks around the edges. That's the kind of change we got. We didn't get, ironically, she's using this phrase, big structural change. We got minor little tweaks around the edges, which made the system continue to rot, which then led to the rise of a fake populist like Trump. So the only way you're going to advance really any giant, bold, left-wing, progressive ideas is to have somebody in there 
totally unapologetic, willing to use the bully pulpit, willing to throw around his weight, willing to get people engaged, willing to call out members of his own party. So you need somebody who's just a bull in a china shop and who's not especially up front given an inch on any of our goals. That candidate's just not Elizabeth Warren. It's just not. Not even close. That candidate's Bernie Sanders. Medicare for all free college, living wage, end the wars, Green New Deal, eliminate all student loan debt, eliminate all medical debt, actually fight back against the military industrial complex who she's actively worked with and helped. They are two drastically different candidates. Now, if you tell me, Kyle, but I don't agree with you in terms of ideology, I think the system we have now is fine. I would only do minor, minor changes to the system we have now. Okay, then Elizabeth Warren's your candidate. I'm not going to argue against you. If that's your ideology, everything we have now is pretty good. Let's do minor tweaks. If that's what you believe, then yes, you absolutely can and should vote for Elizabeth Warren. But if you really believe in getting democratic priorities implemented, the priorities of the people implemented, if you believe in the agenda I just laid out, there is no option. It's Bernie Sanders. So I hope that makes sense to everybody. And again, this is not to say she's not better than other candidates in the race, because she's better than 90% of the other candidates. You know, and we've gone over it on the show in detail. I think that uh, on issues of Wall Street, on issues of taxation, and on issues of trade, she's relatively solid. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, she prodded Obama to get that in there. It returned $12 billion to defrauded Americans, including me. Including me. So are there some issues where she has bright spots? Of course. But is she anywhere close, anywhere near to Bernie Sanders, the Michael Jordan of left-wing politics? No. <laughs> no way. Here, if I could lay it out for everybody in a very simple way, and this is only for people who know basketball. If Bernie is Michael Jordan or LeBron James, Elizabeth Warren is Tracy McGrady. <laughs> really solid, pretty good. Really impressive at times, but also has zero rings and is nowhere in the conversation for, like, greatest ever. So that's my breakdown of that. Nobody take this personally if you're somebody who was leaning in favor of Elizabeth Warren or if you're somebody who was unsure, you know, or, or if you're somebody who likes to say, oh, well, one just edges out the other. No, there are pretty solid differences between the two, and I think everybody needs to know that. That's not to say I don't like Elizabeth Warren. That's not to say I don't respect her. That's not to say I don't acknowledge that she's better than 90% of the other candidates because I do acknowledge all that stuff. But let's stop being silly. Let's stop doing a false equivalence. And let's recognize there was one poll that came out the other day which had Elizabeth Warren beating Bernie Sanders in Iowa. And it was by a substantial margin. Now, that's only one poll, okay? So you can't take too much from it. Um, in other polls, Bernie Sanders is doing very well in Iowa, very well in New Hampshire. But also in the real clear politics average of national polls, Elizabeth Warren has just edged out Bernie Sanders by a couple points. So it's possible we're seeing the, the beginnings of a trend of Elizabeth Warren rising through the ranks and um, being an insurgent candidate. Obviously, we all think Biden is fading because he's running a pathetically terrible campaign. So this segment is more important now than ever, because I do think you have plenty of people 
who are supporting Elizabeth Warren, who used to be Bernie supporters, and then they went, okay, I, now I'm for Elizabeth Warren. And for those people, if they're actually serious about politics and serious about policy and strategy, strategy, <laughs> strategy and getting our ideas implemented – you can't go Elizabeth Warren over Bernie Sanders. It just makes no sense. Okay. All right, next. And this will be our final one about Elizabeth Warren today, but it's very important, and I wanted to give specifics. So here's the bombshell story I tease about Elizabeth Warren, and it highlights what we already knew about her in a very, very stark way. How Elizabeth Warren raised big money before she denounced big money. Ms. Warren wooed wealthy donors for years, stockpiling money from fundraisers, and has used $10.4 million from her 2018 Senate race to underwrite her 2020 bid. Quote, on the floor of the tallest uh, building in Boston, Senator Elizabeth Warren was busy collecting big checks from some of the city's uh, politically connected insiders. It was April 2018, and Ms. Warren, up for re-election, was at a breakfast fundraiser hosted for her by John M. Connors Jr., one of the old guard power brokers of Massachusetts. Soon after Ms. Warren was in Manhattan doing the same, there would be trips to Hollywood and Silicon Valley, Martha's Vineyard, and Philadelphia all with fundraisers on the agenda. She collected campaign funds at the private home of at least one California mega-donor and was hosted by another in Florida. She held finance events until two weeks before her all-but-assured re-election last November. Then, early this year, Ms. Warren made a bold bet that uh, would delight the left. She announced that she was quitting this big-money circuit in the 2020 presidential primary, vowing not to attend private fundraisers or dial up rich donors anymore. Admirers and activists praised her stand, but few noted the fact that she had built a financial cushion by pocketing big checks the year before. The open secret of Ms. Warren's campaign is that her big money fundraising through 2018 helped lay the foundation for her anti-big money run for the presidency. Last winter and spring, she transferred $10.4 million in leftover funds from her 2018 Senate campaign to underwrite her 2020 run, a portion of which was raised from the same donor class she is now running against. This is giant. We already know that she said that, sure, I'm against raising, uh, you know, big donor money in the primary, but in the general, I don't believe in unilateral disarmament. So, in other words, corruption is bad in the primary, but in the general, what are we going to do? We got to win, bro. Well, now we we learn she doesn't even really believe it in terms of the primary because she did a sleazy accounting trick. I'm going to raise extra money in 2018 and then I'm going to transfer it over to my presidential campaign when I run for president. She's not Bernie Sanders. Just keep it real. She's not. Don't conflate them. Don't say they're similar. Don't act like, you know, oh, it's a toss-up, bro. Like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. No, 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 no. One is leagues above the other. To a lot of people, this is going to be the last straw. Because there was already rumblings about, hey, 
She messed up on this issue. She messed up on that issue. She raised money from Raytheon. She voted for Trump's military budget. She's not for eliminating medical debt. She's not for eliminating all student loan debt. And then now people are going to learn that she's flat out using a dishonest tactic here. Honestly, and I know this is going to sound weird, but I think it makes sense. At least some of the other candidates who are openly centrist corporatist candidates, at least they'll, like, tell you up front. They're not pretending. You know what I mean? Like, Amy Klobuchar is not pretending to be like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lefty, and I'm, I don't believe in raising this big donor money. At least she's not doing that tap dance to be dishonest and deceive you. She's just like, yeah, I'm a centrist. I don't agree with Bernie. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm repping my own ideology here. At least that's more honest. What Elizabeth Warren is doing is trying to have her cake and eat it too and act like, like, no, nah, I'm one of the lefty candidates and all my rhetoric on stage is going to agree with Bernie. But now, behind the scenes, I'm going to do all the same shitty tactics and terrible politics of the centrist. And also, by the way, she's been actively courting the Democratic establishment behind the scenes to assuage their fears and let them know, like, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool, I'm not Bernie, I'm not Bernie. Really embarrassing, really pathetic really terrible. And again, this is the last straw for a lot of people. You know, there was that hint that she does play Machiavellian politics when she refused to endorse Bernie in 2016, even though on paper her ideology agrees more with him than Hillary. There was that little hint of like, yeah, I'm playing politics, bitch. What you going to do about it? Nothing. Well, now we know that wasn't a one-off. That's still going on to this day. All right. Now we're going to talk about what's happening with Joe Biden and Donald Trump. So there's this big scandal in the media about how Trump asked the president of Ukraine for dirt on Joe Biden and his family. Um, Now, up front, let's just get this out of the way. Should he have done that? No, of course not. Uh, I think it's correct when people say that's an abuse of power. You can't have the president just, like, fishing around like that in the same way. Like, imagine if President Trump asked the CIA, like, do me a favor, spy on all my political opponents for me. Or the NSA, whoever, you know, one of the agencies. Spy on all my political opponents. That's like Watergate on steroids, literally. So, um, that no, that's not okay. That's not okay at all. Um... Now, but the question is, and I think this is an actual serious question, is what he did illegal? That I don't know, because if he's in conversation, he probably gave himself plausible deniability. He's in conversation with the, you know, the head of Ukraine, and he's like, oh, man, you know, maybe look into the Bidens and what they've been doing over there. And then, you know, there's a little laughter or whatever, and he could be like, I was joking. <laughs> and I don't. I don't know if it would hit the bar of illegality. Again, I don't, he shouldn't have done it, but is it illegal? I have no idea, and I don't think you have any idea either. And the people who are acting like, nah, totally, bro, impeachment on this and on this alone and stuff and whatnot. It's like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You just don't. Stop it. You have no idea what you're talking about. I don't, and you don't. So there's been this, like, media, you know, orgy 
over this issue. And the entire thing is from the perspective of, oh, my God, Trump is evil. Trump is wrong. Trump, you know, should be impeached over this. This is criminal, so on and so forth. Now, what he did is asked a foreign government for dirt on his political opponents. I hate to break up the party here, but this story is literally exactly what Hillary did to the Trumps in the 2016 election. Now, that's not my opinion. You know, I know people, why are you doing whataboutism? It's not whataboutism when I'm pointing out that the thing that you're mad at Trump for is literally the exact same thing that Hillary did, and you didn't give a shit when Hillary did it. That's not whataboutism. That's saying you're a massive hypocrite, and you don't have actual standards. You're just acting in a, in a rank partisan way. So this is what Politico said at the time. Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfired. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after quietly working to boost Clinton. Quote, Donald Trump wasn't the only presidential candidate whose campaign was boosted by officials of a former Soviet bloc country. Ukrainian government officials tried to help Hillary Clinton and undermine Trump by publicly questioning his fitness for office. They also disseminated documents implicating a top Trump aide in corruption and suggested they were investigating the matter, only to back away after the election, and they helped Clinton's allies research damaging information on Trump and his advisors, a Politico investigation found. A Ukrainian-American operative who was consulting for the Democratic National Committee met with top officials in the Ukrainian embassy in Washington in an effort to expose ties between Trump. Uh, Top campaign aide Paul Manafort and Russia, according to people with direct knowledge of the situation. So now, when this story broke, you know what people did? They didn't say, oh, how could you use such disgusting, sleazy means to get that information? You know what they did? They said, oh, oh, look what they found. Paul Manafort's really corrupt. Oh, my God, he's really corrupt. Look at all the corruption. Look at all the corruption. And then we all had really long conversations about how, yeah, Paul Manafort is insanely corrupt, and here are the details of that. I know, because I covered it, and I talked about it. And you know what my coverage said? Paul Manafort's really corrupt. That's what it said. So Hillary works with the government of Ukraine to get dirt on the Trumps and on his uh, campaign officials. They get real information about how Manafort is insanely corrupt. And the media focused on the corruption not the means by which we exposed the corruption, which was working behind the scenes with a foreign government to spy on political opponents and leak information. We didn't care about that. We said, there's corruption. So the thing that Trump was trying to get is what? Dirt on the Bidens and their corruption. Guess what? There's a lot of dirt on the Bidens, and they're massively corrupt. And today, we're not talking about the corruption of the Bidens. We're talking about oh my God, look at the way in which Donald Trump learned about the corruption of the Bidens. So do you see the double standard there? In one instance, you don't care how we got the information. You say Paul Manafort is corrupt and that's all that matters. In the other instance, we get information that Biden's corrupt and you're like, you're not allowed to talk about that because the way he got the information is not right. Well, that, that's just rank partisan hackery is what that is. And I'm sorry, but it is that. It is. Now, um, if you say, well, come on, Kyle, this is not like... We're talking about the Bidens here. Is there corruption? 
equal to that of Paul Manafort? Uh, my response is, yeah, and maybe even worse. And this isn't me saying it. There's been previous reporting in Politico and elsewhere, widely reported stuff about how his entire family cashed in on his public profile in an incredibly corrupt way. So here we go. Biden's family has a lot of dirt, dirt on them because they're massively corrupt. Biden, Inc., over his decades in office, middle-class Joe's family fortunes have closely tracked his political career. During the Obama years, several months after Joe's younger brother, James Biden, joined a construction firm as an executive, the firm received a contract worth more than a billion dollars to build houses in Iraq while Joe oversaw the U.S.-led occupation of that country. I'm going to give you little tidbits of information that we learned from this article and elsewhere to explain to you why th his corruption is not a non-story. It's the same thing as the Clinton Foundation, and Trump successfully used the Clinton Foundation to clobber Hillary over the head and paint her accurately as a corrupt politician and a defender of the status quo who's going to change nothing. As Trump was talking about the Clinton Foundation, all the media was acting like, there's nothing to see here. Everybody shut up. And guess what? It didn't work because there was something to see there. By the same token, now with Biden and his family, Trump's going, going after the corruption. Well, now we have the Clinton Foundation scandal all over again, except with Joe Biden and his family getting rich off of his public name. So let me give you more. In the early 2000s, before working with his uncle, Hunter Biden had opened a lobbying practice that landed clients with interests that overlapped with Joe's committee priorities. And that's ahead of his father's second presidential bid. He entered the hedge fund business at that time. I got more. As Joe was entering the Senate and taking a seat on the banking committee, James Biden, again, that's his brother, obtained unusually generous loans from lenders who later faced federal regulatory issues. More. Joe Biden was in touch with uh, two of these banks about his brother's loans, once to scold a bank executive about invoking his name in attempts to collect an overdue payment, um, and then Biden also threatened to pull a billion-dollar subsidy from Ukraine if they didn't immediately fire their top prosecutor, who was leading a corruption investigation into a natural gas firm, which is uh, Biden, which Biden's son's Hunter sits on the board of. So Biden's son, for five years, was getting paid fifty thousand dollars per month from a Ukrainian natural gas firm. Then the Ukrainian government is investigating that for corruption. And Biden says, if you keep investigating it, I, the vice president of the United States at the time, we're going to pull your billion-dollar subsidy per year. So do you want that billion-dollar subsidy per year? Shut up. Don't look into my son. Don't look into that company. Don't look into corruption. Now, understand something. We're not allowed to talk about that because the, Trump said on the phone to the Ukrainian president that you – like, oh, is there some corruption going on with Biden? Maybe you should look into that. Since Trump said that on the phone, now the media is acting like there's nothing to see with Biden. They've even called it a conspiracy theory. Which part is a conspiracy theory? There's like eight different examples of rank corruption from Biden and his family. So what do you mean? No, no, no. Here's the reality, guys. There is something there. And Biden is corrupt. And his family is corrupt. And they did cash in on his name. And this is a sketchy-ass deal with a Ukrainian natural gas firm. He was getting paid $50,000 a month, and then when they tried to look into it, they said, shh, if you do, if you do that, we're going we're gonna to cut your subsidy. So here's, I'm begging, I'm pleading with people, and I, you know, 
this is one of the Kyle rules of politics that I've mentioned before, and I think it's incredibly important and nobody else acknowledges it, but why is it that the Democratic establishment and mainstream media, they always default to the worst possible anti-Trump arguments? It's like written in the laws of nature that they do that. Guys, we're talking about a president who is arming a theocratic dictator who's committing a genocide and massacring babies in Yemen. And, oh, yeah, it just so happens that that theocratic dictator is giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to the president through his hotels. So we have massive corruption. We have facilitating a genocide and the mass murder of people. And what's the response? Oh, shall I, should I be talking about that? They just announced we're sending troops to Saudi Arabia. Why? To protect their goddamn oil fields. Only 13% of Americans want to do that. That's what Trump's doing. I didn't hear a peep about that from the Democrats, but what do I hear? Oh, my God. He said naughty no-no words on the phonesies. Oh, God. Why are you guys all so bad at politics? See, what they're trying to do is neatly draw lines around what's allowed to be discussed and what isn't allowed to be discussed. But that didn't work in 2016 with the Clinton Foundation. You guys kept insisting you're not allowed to talk about the Clinton Foundation. uh, And people kept talking about it, and it turns out that those arguments landed. You can keep insisting until you're blue in the face that you're not allowed to talk about Biden and his family's corruption. But now the cat's out of the bag, and people are going to keep talking about it. If anything, you're bringing more attention to it by pretending like you're not allowed to talk about it by only focusing on the way Trump is getting this information. So stop using arguments that end up helping Trump. And, and I love, oh, my God, I've seen so many shitty tweets. People are like, oh, here's the New York Times both sizing this issue. They're both sizing it because guess what? This is an issue where it's not a false equivalence. There's an actual equivalence. Sure, Trump should not be fishing around and saying spy on my political opponents. That's insane. Also, Joe Biden and his family should not be getting massively rich off the fact that he's a public official and rank corruption in countries like Ukraine. That's not a difficult position to come to. And if you're one of those people who are like, well, that's just the way business, uh, you know, business as usual works and the status quo works, that's the fucking problem. That's the problem is that in D.C. they're so accustomed, like, what do you mean this is what we do? Our entire family gets massively wealthy with these massively corrupt deals with other governments. What's the problem? There's no problem here. There is a problem there because most normal people look at that and they say, I'm working away at a job, you know, making 50K a year barely can pay my bills, barely can take care of my family, and these people are using their power, influence, and their money and their name in order to get wealthy in the most corrupt ways imaginable, and I'm supposed to just say, oh, that's totally fine. No, you're giving Trump an argument where he could say, no, I'm doing what I said I was going to do all along, which is I'm going to expose the corrupt people in the deep state and the swamp, and I'm going to fight against it. So why are you focusing on the arguments that his counter-argument is going to clobber you over the fucking head when you try to say, shut up, you're not allowed to talk about the Biden corruption. Bullshit. He's going to go ahead like a bull in a china shop and do exactly that. You think, oh my God, I'm thinking of the debates and I'm scared to death. I'm scared to death. Joe Biden on a debate stage with Donald Trump, this dude who was rambling and he was talking about how the kids need record players and they have to hear words. That dude is going to accurately be able to push back and beat down Donald Trump? When Donald Trump already has got massive dirt on him, what are you going to say, Joe? This, uh, and uh, honest, honest to God, this is the response from the campaign. This president is violating all the norms. That's your argument? Don't look into my corruption. You're violating all the norms. Oh, boy, we're in trouble, guys. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Don't. 
don't do it. Don't do it. Don't use this argument. Don't go down this road. It's incredibly weak. It's incredibly pathetic. This is Russiagate bullshit all over again. And who was right about that, by the way? Who was right about that? The walls are closing in. You know, this is the stuff you hear all the time. The beginning of the end. The walls are closing in. Oh, shit. It it reminds me of one of my favorite all-time tweets where somebody said uh, on Twitter, it's like, how, uh, well, how's old Donnie going to get out of this one? And then it says underneath, Donnie easily wiggles out of it. And then it says, ah, well, nevertheless. (laughs) That's like every freaking story involving Trump that they try to blow up. They don't go after the, you know, the real important stories and the ones that that are incredibly poignant and would land and would destroy him. They focus on the lowest common denominator where now the argument is, you're not allowed to talk about Joe Biden's corruption and his family's corruption because of the way in which you got that information. We're only going to pretend like the only scandal here is the way in which you try to get the information. Well, funny how you want to talk about that now, but when Hillary did the exact same tactic, it, was, it wasn't even an issue. Of course you ignored it, and you went right to Paul Manafort's corruption because he was corrupt. But with the Biden's corruption, shh. Oh, please, man. This is embarrassing. This is pathetic. This is sad. And um, I'm begging people to keep their eye on the ball which is hammer him on his record, hammer him on policies, and focus on defeating him in 2020 instead of, you know, getting caught up in the weeds of uh, an issue where it's not going to amount to anything. All right, let me take a break. When we come back... Oh, we got CNN's Chris Saliza, who may have broken the dislikes record on, on a, a video on YouTube with his terrible take on Bernie. And we got uh, the U.S. has committed to sending forces into Saudi Arabia, and we have to talk about that because nobody else is, and it's devastating. So stay right there. We'll have uh, all that and much, much more. We're just getting started today.
Alright, we back, bitch. And as I said, we are just getting started today. It's one of those shows where as you prep it, you're like, holy shit, there's a lot of great stories here. Really important stories, so on and so forth. All right, so CNN's Chris Saliza. Saliza, Saliza. I should probably know how to say that because he's Italian and I have Italian in my family, but I actually don't know how to say that, so... This is a little bit of a long clip, but it's definitely worth it. I think you should hear almost all of it here. So CNN's Chris Saliza, 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 however you say it, uh, may have broken the dislikes record on a CNN video with his really hilariously bad take on Bernie Sanders here. Take a look. presidential race. Or, more accurately, something has not happened. Sanders, the Vermont Democratic Socialist, is stuck in neutral. And that's a very bad place to be with the day when actual voters will cast actual votes getting closer and closer. So take an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that was released in mid-September. It showed Sanders at 14% in third place, but trailing both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden by double digits. That's not great, but that isn't even the real problem for Sanders out of this poll. It's actually this. While Biden had gained five points from a similar poll in July and Warren had gained six, Sanders' support stayed right where it was, up only a single point from the summer. And that, unfortunately for Sanders, is far from the only poll that shows him stagnating. A look at a real clear politics average of all of the polling conducted in the Democratic primary race to date confirms this Sanders stall. In the spring of 2019, Sanders was the clear second choice to Joe Biden. In fact, all the way through early June, Biden and Sanders were the only two candidates to consistently poll in double digits in the real clear politics average. But since summer has ended, Sanders' political support has flatlined a bit. His average support has never gone above 17.5% and never gone lower than 14%. So here's how you understand this. Sanders, due to the loyalness of his most ardent supporters, has always had a pretty high floor in this race, probably right around 14%. But what's happened over these last few months is the emergence of what looks like a pretty low ceiling for Sanders' support in the 2020 race. Not a lot of give there. So speaking of give, what gives? Why is Sanders where he is? Well, the short answer is that there are just a whole lot more options for voters in this election than there were in the 2016 Democratic primary race. As you'll remember, in that race, Sanders was the only alternative to Hillary Clinton. If you didn't like Clinton, and there were lots of Democrats in that camp, you were voting for Sanders, period. It was your only choice. But in 2020, there are 20 candidates still in the race. 20! Which means that if you don't like, say, Biden, who is currently the frontrunner, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, I could go on, of other options not named Bernie Sanders that you can choose in the race. One option in particular, Elizabeth Warren, is another big reason that Sanders' support seems to have hit a bit of a wall. But Warren's candidacy looks a lot like Sanders' candidacy unapologetic liberalism in support of broad structural change in politics and society. 
Warren supports Sanders' Medicare for All proposal. Warren and Sanders are both prominent supporters of the Green New Deal. Warren and Sanders both want to tax the wealthy and corporations to pay for their various proposals. The problem for Sanders is that Warren is surging on that message while he, well, isn't. In the real clear politics polling average again, Warren is now clear of Sanders for second place. And the NBC Wall Street Journal poll put her at 25%, the highest she's been in any hypothetical national polling since the primary started. So what explains Warren's rise on what is, for all intents and purposes, Sanders' longtime message? Well, voters like new faces. Sanders ran already in 2016, and lots of Democratic voters flocked to him. But for many of those same voters, it may be a been-there-done-that situation. Warren is, in their minds, Bernie 2.0, the same proposal in a more voter-friendly and electable package. And that gets at the more fundamental problem here for Sanders. The people who love him love him exactly because he doesn't care about how he looks, perennially unkempt, or what he sounds like, very, very shouty. Those traits make him authentic and different to them. But those same Sandersian traits may be the thing that is keeping him from growing his support in the race in any meaningful and statistically significant way. So if you're a Democrat, you are relentlessly focused on nominating someone who can beat Donald Trump in November 2020. And all polling I've seen suggests that is the dominant motivation for a majority of Democratic voters. Then Sanders' profile may keep you from jumping on board his campaign. Where do I begin? Oh, my God. Bernie beats Trump in every single poll ever done in a head-to-head matchup, and consistently by large margins. The whole point of this video is to push a narrative as he pretends like, who, me, bro? I'm just telling it like it is and giving you the trends that are happening. Oh, really? Well, funny how you didn't tell us anything about this. John Nichols tweeted, the latest California poll, Bernie Sanders tied for first. Latest New Hampshire poll, Bernie Sanders in first. Newest Iowa poll, Bernie Sanders 3% behind Biden. Latest uh, Nevada poll, Bernie Sanders in first. Latest South Carolina poll, where Bernie did very poorly the last time around, in second. Now, there was one poll coming out of Iowa that wasn't favorable for Bernie. It had him at 11% and Joe Biden and... Elizabeth Warren were way above him, and it was Elizabeth Warren's first poll in first. So that's real. However, that's one poll, one poll, and the rest of the uh, data has not followed suit with that yet. So whenever there are polls that show Bernie leading, they never talk about like, ooh, is this a trend? It's always the opposite. It's always whenever there's a single poll, it's bad for him. And I need you to understand that the internal polling from the uh, Sanders campaign, which has been way more accurate than a lot of these other polls, shows Bernie doing really well in Iowa, as many other polls already do that are very public. And uh, he just said in response to this new poll, I think we're going to win Iowa. So just so you know that this isn't like they're – He's taking, he's cherry-picking the data that he wants you to see, and he's running with it. Now, don't get me wrong. 
am I saying it's a layup election, a primary election for Bernie? No, I'm not. It's actually true that Elizabeth Warren, as of right this second, is beating Bernie in the national average of polls. That is something to be concerned about. But he's trying to put the nail in the coffin and act like I like he's done basically and he's he's tap dancing on his political grave. But there's no reason to believe that he's actually done or that oh this is uh you know this concern trolling this nuance trolling of like I mean what did he say? Um, Bernie has a low ceiling. That's a point he actually made. Just so you know, that is exactly the point that Nate Silver and all these other idiots made about Trump in the 2016 election. Oh, he's got very ardent supporters who really love him. I like how they try to spin that like it's a bad thing. Really, you know, people absolutely adore this guy and love him and are willing to knock on doors and work for him nonstop and all that stuff. And the reason why this is bad is because there's, he's got a low ceiling. Oh, really? He has a low ceiling? Well, how about this story? Bernie Sanders becomes the first candidate to reach one million individual donors. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest to this point in history. Do you understand that? The fastest to this point in history. The idea that he's done or that he's stuck in neutral is just fundamentally untrue. Now, again, I don't want you to relax. I don't want you to say, oh, it's okay, we got this, we're number one, and it's easy. No. There is a race going on right this second, and, you know, between Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and, and uh, Bernie, it's tough, and it's tight, and we have to keep fighting, we have to keep campaigning, you have to keep making phone calls, you have to keep canvassing, you have to keep, you know, keep at it, convincing people, getting the word out there, all that stuff is so vitally important. But the whole point of this CNN video is to concern troll as if, like, I'm just describing what is. And I'm not pushing the narrative that I want to be, but they are doing that. This is what they want. They want to push out the idea that he's done, he's over, he's old news, while pretending like they're just describing that that's already the case, when that's not already the case. You could have just as easily, like I just did, picked out very positive polls for Bernie and say, hey, look at this amazing news. But they didn't do that, because they never do that. Another really important point is, you know who's, who's absolutely tanked? Joe Biden. He's dropped over a dozen points since he launched. And there's not been a single story like this from Chris Eliza. Like, obviously he's done because his trend numbers are going way down. Bernie's are still going up, albeit slowly. But Biden's are going way down. And he's like, nothing to see there. So, in other words, it is ideological. It is ideological. And it's just so frustrating they pretend like they're non-ideological. You do have a, pers- a perspective. And everything is filtered through that lens. And you might not even realize it, but it's the case. And it's kind of embarrassing. By the way, again, the like to dislike was astronomical on this. It was hilariously bad for this guy. And nobody likes him. Now, I want to go through some of the other um, points he made because it really, it really, you know, highlights the fact that he doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. He's just saying stuff. So one point he makes is, uh, oh, why is Sanders, like, doing so bad now? Because, quote, voters like new faces. Voters like new faces, and that's why Amy Klobuchar is tied for first. Oh, that's right, she's not. She's near the bottom. That's why Tim Ryan is tied for first. Oh, that's right, he's not there either. That's why Mayor Pete is tied for first. Oh, God damn it, that's why. Okay, no, that's not right either. That's why Bill de Blasio has built a giant leap. Oh, God damn it, that's, that's not it either. Okay, 
if anything, all of the data shows the exact opposite of what Chris Liz is saying here. In other words, there's a bias towards faces you already know. It's actually why Joe Biden had a massive lead, even though he's the world's worst candidate in human history. It's because everybody knows, oh, Joe Biden, the VP. I know Joe. So it's a lot of default support that goes his way. So when Chris Liz says voters like new faces, totally made up. The exact opposite is true. He just had to come up, I don't know, why is Elizabeth Warren doing well right now in the polls, and Bernie's only gaining a little bit at a time, and she beat him now in the, in the real clear politics average. Uh, voters like new faces. And then the other thing, he goes on to argue um, that uh, Elizabeth Warren, well, she's just Bernie 2.0, but she's not. You're a CNN host. Your job is to educate people. If you're not educating them and telling them the difference between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in terms of policy, you suck at your job, and you shouldn't be doing this job. So we just did a whole segment on it before, but just to run through a couple things, uh, Bernie Sanders wants to eliminate all medical debt. Elizabeth Warren does not. Bernie Sanders wants to eliminate all student loan debt. Elizabeth Warren does not. She only wants to eliminate a portion of it. Elizabeth Warren voted for Trump's massively bloated uh, military budget. Bernie Sanders did not. Um, one of these candidates is taking corporate money and big donor money in the general and did a sneaky accounting trick to get corporate money and big donor money in the primary. The person who took the money is Elizabeth Warren. The person who didn't is Bernie Sanders. And the list goes on and on. Um, so your job is to educate people, but you're not doing that. You're actively obfuscating and acting like, they're the same, bro. They're the same. Um, and then I like how he argues that the reason why Bernie's people like him is because he's, quote, unkempt and shouty. I've not met a single Bernie Sanders voter who says the reason I like him is because he looks like a mess and doesn't comb his hair and he's loud. You know, none of us have said that. You want to know why? None of us believe that. We wouldn't care if he was the most soft-spoken person on the planet. It's about his policies and his ideology. How do you still not see it? We like him because he's shouty? We like him because he's unkempt? No, we like him because of what he's fighting for. And that's why you hate him. Um, and he even gets, like, look at, he even botches the most simple facts that are easily verifiable. Oh, Bernie was the only alternative to Hillary in the last election. Um, staring in Martin O'Malley, there was Martin O'Malley, there was Lincoln Chafee, there was Jim Webb. There were other options. Guess what? None of them got any traction. You want to know why? Because Bernie is a better candidate and is really good on the policies. So it, but he just, he writes that off. He acts like, no, that didn't happen. That wasn't a thing. On paper, who should have been, uh, you know, who should have gone further? Martin O'Malley or Bernie Sanders? According to Chris Liz's shitty playbook in his own mind. Answer, Martin O'Malley. Look at him. He's young, he's good-looking, he talks like a politician, he's really smooth. What are you talking about? He's a great speaker, Martin O'Malley. Sure, Martin O'Malley. The dude got like negative 24%. He did an event, I think we covered a story where he did an event and one person showed up. But he didn't go anywhere. Why? Because he's not offering people anything. Bernie Sanders is. But he just writes all that off because it makes Bernie look good when you say, oh my God, he went from 0%. To 47% of the vote and almost knocking out a candidate that had a political dynasty and the entire backing of the Democratic establishment. He can't give him credit where credit's due, so what does he do? He acts like, well, it was only, if you didn't like Hillary, it was only Bernie. That's the only option. 
He acted like well, it was just it was sport he was going to get anyway, and so no, he busted his ass to get that support. And if it wasn't for the shenanigans of the party managers, he may have won. Because we know what happened with the DNC. They were an arm of the Hillary campaign. That's been proven. Donna Brazil even said it. She admitted it. So everything, everything is downplayed Bernie. Everything is obfuscated and deflected, painted in the most negative light, and that's why this video is like 95% disliked. I mean, I, one of the things I've come to believe that I didn't necessarily believe before is that all of the coverage that you're going to see in mainstream outlets on polling, it's actually very cynical. And here's why. They're not just trying to give you, oh, here's a snapshot of what is. That's not what they're trying to do. That's what polls are at their, you know, at their highest aspiration is, oh, here's just, this is just what's going on right this second, and that's it. What they do is they read into the numbers whatever they want to be the case, and then they push that narrative as if they're just calling balls and strikes. Who, <laughs> oh, me? No, I'm just calling balls and strikes, and Bernie's done. He's stuck in neutral. He's not going anywhere. It's over. Wrap it up. Go home. We're done here. So the whole point is to read into the numbers the narrative you want to read into the numbers and then run with it and then try to convince everybody. Like It's trying to get people to give up on the idea of Bernie, to act like, move along here. You had your moment, and it's over. And shut the fuck up. There's, you're not going to go anywhere. Stuck in neutral, not doing anything. Here's why. And, and he's pushing a narrative as he pretends like he's just describing what is. And that is deeply disingenuous. And I hate it. And I've noticed this a lot now. With all the polling coverage, it's not just here's a snapshot of what's happening at this very moment. It's, oh, here's the snapshot and here's how you interpret it. And the way you interpret it is going to back up the narrative I want you to believe. And this just happened with Nate Silver got piled on just yesterday because he tweeted something like, I'm not sure Bernie should get credit for his incredibly diverse, you know, swath of supporters because uh, a lot of white liberals left his campaign, and what's left now is the residue of who remains. So, in other words, all of those cries in the last election, Bernie Sanders doesn't have a diverse following, it's too white. It's too white a following, it's not diverse enough. Well, this time around, the most diverse following. By far, the most diverse following. And they go, oh, that doesn't count. That doesn't matter. Why? Well, the white voters. Where are the white voters? Last time you had the white voters, you were like, oh, why do you have the white voters? Give it, well, we need people of color. Now he's got the people of color. Ah, where are the whites? So it's ne they're never just describing what is. They're going to attack him no matter what. No matter what they're going to attack him. No matter what they're going to attack him. They'll find something. They'll find something. And, again, referring to uh, diverse voters as residue. Yeah, oh, Twitter had fun with that one. Twitter had fun with that one. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> Just so you know, there's like a zillion candidates in this race. So maybe the reason why Bernie Sanders right now is hovering around like 14%, 15% in terms of the average um, is because there's so many candidates in the race, and it's also really early on. So, he, of course, he wasn't going to immediately get 47% of the vote like he did last time. There were four options last time, or five options, and this time around there's like 20. So all the concern trolling, about, mm, he doesn't already have 78%. <laughs> gotcha. They're, they're such hack. They're such hack. 
How can it be that CNN, with a budget of a quadrillion dollars, does a shittier show than me, a nonsense YouTube host funded through Patreon, patreon.com slash secular talk? I don't get it. I don't get it. You have all the money, you have all the resources, all the institutional backing. You can hire anybody. You can put out whatever kind of videos you want. You can do deep investigative reporting. And instead, you got crystallism. How the hell did this guy get this job? All right, next. The big story that nobody's talking about. So here we go, y'all. The U.S has committed to sending ground forces into Saudi Arabia after their oil field was attacked. Here's that, by the way. You know, we discussed this very recently. There was a drone attack on the Saudi oil field. Now, U.S. intelligence saying, Iran, it's definitely Iran, 100%, on, no question about it, it's Iran. Um, do I believe them? No. I'm convinced it's the Houthi rebels. Why? Because Saudi Arabia has been doing a genocide in Yemen for years now, about four years now, and uh, they're going after the Houthi government in Yemen. Now, is Iran totally uninvolved? No, they are involved. They gave the Houthis the weapons. So they're involved in that respect, but that's equally as involved as us giving Saudi Arabia the weapons that they then used to do their genocide in Yemen. So we're culpable in that respect. And they're trying to say, blame Iran for all of this, even though I'm, I'm convinced it was the Houthis who did this attack on Saudi Arabia. Um, so, in response to this, the Trump administration announced, yeah, we're sending U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia. For what? To protect the oil fields. That's what they're doing. Sending U.S. troops. U.S. troops are going to put their lives on the line to protect oil for the Saudi theocratic dictatorship. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. General Dunford and I just returned from the White House where we met with the President and his national security team to discuss options to deter Iran's continued aggressive behavior. As we have seen, the Iranian regime is waging a deliberate campaign to destabilize the Middle East and impose costs on the international economy. In recent months, Iran has increased its military activity through direct attacks and support to its proxies in the region. In the Persian Gulf and Gulf of Oman, which are vital waterways for global commerce, Iran has threatened the safe passage of ships by attacking commercial vessels and illegally seizing a British oil tanker. In Yemen, Iran is perpetuating war by providing sustained financial support and advanced weapons to the Houthi insurgency. And on June 20th, Iran shot down a United States unmanned aircraft that was flying over international waters. Despite repeated calls from President Trump to begin diplomatic talks, Iranian aggression continues to increase. It's so full of shit. In the face of this sustained malign behavior, the United States and other countries have demonstrated great restraint in hopes that the Iranian leadership would choose peace and reverse Iran's steep decline into isolation and economic collapse. But the attack on September 14th against Saudi Arabian oil facilities 
represents a dramatic escalation of Iranian aggression. Oh my God. It is clear, based on detailed exploitation conducted by Saudi, United States, and other international investigative teams, that the weapons used in the attack were Iranian produced and were not launched from Yemen, as was initially claimed. All indications are that Iran was responsible for the attack. The United States has a responsibility to protect our citizens and our interests in the region. And the international community has a responsibility to protect the global, in, uh, the global economy and international rules and norms. All of this is threatened by Iran's significant escalation of violence. This week, I've been in dialogue with the Saudi Defense Minister and other partners about this latest attack. To prevent further escalation, Saudi Arabia requested international support to help protect the kingdom's critical infrastructure. The United Arab Emirates has also requested assistance. In response to the kingdom's request, the President has approved the deployment of U.S. forces, which will be defensive in nature and primarily focused on air and missile defense. We will also work to accelerate the delivery of military equipment to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE to enhance their ability to defend themselves. We're sending troops to Saudi Arabia that are defensive in nature to do what? To protect their oil fields. Okay, there was polling done on this question, and look at the results. Only 13% of Americans would support the U.S. military joining Saudi Arabia in a conflict as part of a response to a recent attack on two major Saudi oil fields, a new insider poll, business insider, of U.S. adults shows. The poll asked participants, what, if any, role do you think the U.S. should take in a response to the attack on the Saudi oil facilities? The participants were given six options and asked to select the one that comes closest to their view. Overall, the poll found 6% of Americans think the U.S. should engage in air assaults or bombings as part of a Saudi military response, but refrain from committing ground forces. Meanwhile, a little over 7% said, quote, the U.S. should help Saudi Arabia with a complete military assistance in whatever form may be required. The most popular position was 25%, and they said, get out of the region entirely. So I want to reiterate, only 13% of Americans say the U.S. military should join Saudi Arabia to, you know, protect their oil fields. As I was prepping for the show, it took me, I, I had read through about six articles before I even stumbled across this story of the U.S. saying we're sending troops to Saudi Arabia. This got next to no coverage I haven't heard a single Democratic politician release a statement on this, and I haven't seen any serious, substantive coverage, detailed coverage, and lengthy coverage of this at all on any of the major networks. And even most of the print outlets didn't write this up. This is a giant story. I just told you the numbers. Only 13% of Americans want to do this, but they just announced that we're doing this, by the way. You can't do that. You've got to talk to Congress. You've got to get approval through Congress. This is the U.S. saying we're going to go protect Saudi oil fields. That's us doing a military action. You need that approved through Congress. Congress declares war, not the president. He's willy-nilly. He's, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Go protect Saudi oil fields. You're going to send American men and women to maybe die to protect Saudi Arabian oil. There was an Onion article from a few weeks ago that it said, like, John Bolton, 
An attack on the, on the Saudi oil field is an attack on all of us. That was from, you know, weeks before the attack happened, and now this is literally becoming reality. And John Bolton's not even in there. It's not even John Bolton. It's Trump and Pompeo and Gina Haspel. And... Hey, Democrats, wake up. Wait, here you go. Here, see, they're, try, they're searching. They're like, okay, we got the election coming up. We got to go after Trump. What are we going to do? And the, the thing that the media settled on and the Democrats started running with, the, the call that Trump made with the Ukrainian prime minister where he said, hey, man, you got some dirt on Joe Biden and his family for me? Like, look into what they're doing. And, um, of course, as we covered in detail, there actually is a lot of dirt there. Joe Biden's son was making $50,000 a month from a Ukrainian natural gas firm, and there was going to be an investigation into that Ukrainian natural gas firm, and then Biden threatened the person who was doing the investigation and said, if you keep doing that, we're going to pull the $1 billion subsidy that we give you away. So there is corruption there, but what does the media do? Biden didn't do anything wrong. It's not even a conspiracy theory, whatever. Look at Trump was trying to get information in a really bad way. Oh, my God. That's the argument they're using against him right now. As this president is sending troops to Saudi Arabia to protect their oil fields, only 13% of Americans support that. This is illegal and unconstitutional. It's incredibly stupid. It risks the next giant war with Iran, which is almost certainly going to happen now. And I haven't heard a goddamn peep, not from the media, not from the Democrats. I, I, we live in the twilight zone, guys. We live in the twilight zone. I can't, it's so hard to fathom the fact that this is happening and nobody's even talking about it. I'm going to make a prediction for you. You ready for this? I'm going to bet you that at least half of new media outlets don't even cover this. At least half of new media outlets won't even cover this. This is the state of affairs that we see in front of us right now. We got the story of the fucking year, which is the first clear step towards war with Iran. And it <laughs> But Trump made a no-no call on the phonesies. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So um, the other thing I can't stand is that in this announcement, they're blaming Iran for what's happening in Yemen. You know who you blame for that? Saudi Arabia, who are bombing open-air marks, open-air marks, open-air mosques and prisons, open-air mosques. I meant to say open-air markets and mosques and, um, not prisons, hospitals, schools. They're, they're bombing all these civilian centers, and they're doing it repeatedly with U.S. weapons that we keep giving them. You know, blaming Iran for what's happening in, in Yemen. Oh, please. They're uh, helping the Houthi rebels who took over the country four years ago. They're uh, giving them weapons so that they could try their best to fight off this onslaught from Saudi Arabia, who's backed by the U.S. So this idea that, oh, what they, what they do is aggression. What Saudi Arabia does isn't aggression. Of course it's aggression. They're the ones who are responsible for the civilian deaths that are happening over there. Um, and then he said... Iranian aggression has increased, and the U.S. has shown great restraint. We pulled out of the Iranian nuclear agreement, and then we chastised them when, months later, they said, okay, we're not going to abide by it anymore. We pulled out of it, and then we get mad at them when they say, okay, I guess we'll do the same. You pulled out of it. You can't berate them to stay in the agreement when you pulled out of it. And they were... It was verified over a dozen times that they were following the agreement to the letter, and Trump pulled out of it. 
So the problem is that you pulled out of it. That's the problem. Everything was going swimmingly until you blew it up and you escalated. This idea of, oh, U.S. has shown great restraint. You're do- waging an economic war on Iran. You're absolutely starving the country. You've sanctioned medicine. The International Court of Justice, the highest court at the U.N., said the U.S. is not allowed to do that. That's illegal under international law. You can't do it. We said, watch us. So we waged economic warfare, and you said we've showed great restraint? There's so much propaganda and so much misinformation, and it's a shame because this stuff is not sufficiently pushed back against at any level, and it's devastating. All right, we got another military story. So here's one of those stories that got about 5% of the total media coverage that it should have. U.S. drone strike kills 30 pine nut farms, or farmers, I guess I'm supposed to say, pine nut farm workers. Okay. Let me repeat that where my brain is not sputtering out and shitting itself. U.S. drone strike kills 30 pine nut farm workers in Afghanistan. 30 people. Innocent civilians. It wasn't that long ago we also did this same thing to a hospital. Remember that? I remember that. It was us and our allies, and we killed innocent people in a hospital, and then afterwards it was, <laughs> whoopsie, <laughs> um, So 40 others were injured, and I'm going to predict here that the death toll is going to go up. 30 are already dead, 40 injured. You know, you're looking at at least 40, 45 dead. It's got to be. Usually the initial estimates are always low because the military tries to save face. And usually they try to hang on as long as possible and act like, no, 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 these were insurgents, bro. But this one, the evidence is so overwhelming in this one. Um, They go on to say, angered by the attack, some residents of Nangarhar province demanded an apology and monetary compensation from the U.S. government. Quote, such mistakes cannot be justified. American forces must realize they will never win the war by killing innocent civilians, said Javed Mansur, a resident of Jalalabad City. Scores of local men joined a protest against the attack on Thursday morning as they helped carry the victims' bodies to Jalalabad City and then to the burial site. Um, So the United Nations says that nearly 4,000 civilians were killed or wounded in the first half of the year. 4,000 civilians. And unfortunately, a lot of that uptake is due to us. Now, the Taliban controls more of the country today than they did when we originally invaded. So by any objective measure, we failed. Unless, of course, the measure is, hey, is Osama bin Laden dead? And he is dead, but he's dead because we got him in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. But uh, the original argument for going into Afghanistan was to get Osama bin Laden. And he's been dead, and we're still there. It's almost like there are other reasons that we're there as well. Could it be the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth uh, that's in Afghanistan? And, you know, maybe could it also be the profits of the military-industrial complex? No, you're not allowed to say that. Um, but this is what happens. This is war. This is what happens. Thirty pine nut, farmer killed, pine nut farmers killed. 
pine nut farm workers. And then you get mad when, you, you know, it's possible, and it happens from time to time, this can turn the population against the U.S. government, where now you have people who are actually more sympathetic to the Taliban. Now, it depends, because there's a lot of, obviously, terrible stuff that the Taliban does there, too. Car bombings, they kill innocent people all the time as well. But, you know, it's a case-by-case basis. Is, can there be regions of the country where the U.S. killed more innocent people, so people are more sympathetic to the Taliban? Sure. Could you have the opposite as well? People killed by the Taliban in certain regions, and so they're more sympathetic to the U.S.? Absolutely. Um, but it's a mess. The point is, it's a mess. And if the idea is we obviously have to stay there to protect the innocent civilians, well, tell that to the innocent civilians we killed when we bombed a hospital, and tell that to the innocent pine, pine nut farm workers who we killed, and then we likely won't even compensate in any way, because that's the other thing, is it's like pulling teeth to get any sort of monetary compensation, because honestly, the U.S. government does not do these people that we're killing as equals. There's ah, collateral damage. You know, it sounds like, oh, it's just, oopsies, our bad, tee hee hee. Like, it sounds like it's, it's not that serious. Oh, collateral, it's just collateral damage. It's not like those are human beings with complex backstories and detailed lives who are, you know, have the same kind of emotions as, as you do. And it's not like you just totally uprooted and destroyed countless families. I mean, they're probably living in poverty in the first place, and you take away somebody who might be the only source of income for a family looking after kids, now what? Now what happens? Sorry, your life's ruined. Ha ha. Like, oh, man. So it's possible you create more terrorists. You're certainly not making the area any more safe. Um, And, of course, I haven't even brought up the fact that you're wasting the lives of U.S. soldiers since there's still 14,000 there, um, and you're wasting uh, U.S. tax money. So it's immoral, it's unethical, it kills civilians, um, it's useless, it's been going on for 18 years, it wastes money, and it kills our people as well. We should withdraw immediately. The most Trump is talking about is reducing to 9,000 reducing to 9,000. Think about how absurd that is. Oh, you want to you wanna withdraw to 9,000? That's 9,000 troops still there. Get out. Get out of there now. Get out of there now. Get out of there now. And again, Democrats, talk about this. This is the stuff you talk about. This is the stuff you hammer away on. Th- these are the real scandals. I mean, this is just how do you mess up this badly? How, ter- how quick are you to pull the trigger? That's a serious question now, because obviously your intelligence was utter trash when you massacred pine nut farm workers. Obviously your intelligence was horrendous. So how bad is the rest of you know the rest of it? Are you making solid decisions? Clearly not. How many innocent people have you killed? What are your processes exactly? Is anybody going to get fired over this? Is anybody going to get prosecuted over this? You know the answer to all those questions, and it's. It's really devastating, and I don't know what to say, except my heart goes out to these people who did this. And we're trying, man. We really want to fight to end this war and bring our troops home, and the government has been resisting relentlessly. And even when presidents run on the, on the um, platform of we're going to get out, then they don't do it. It's the worst. Okay, 
Let me take a quick final break, and then when we come back, I got Mayor Pete released his health care plan, and it's terrible. I got uh, a Democratic candidate dropping out, and then we'll have some fun, and I'll show you the goofy-ass uh, candidates dancing awkwardly at the uh, Iowa Steak Prize. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and more.
right, I'm back, everybody. <clears throat> I have to tell you that uh, that was an emergency food break. I was just absolutely starving. My belly was eating itself. And so that was a panicked, uh, I must grab something to continue the show type stuff. But I have now been satiated. And so now we get to make fun of Mayor Pete together. Boy, has he made a turn for the worse, huh? Jesus, this is bad. Okay, here we go. So Mayor Pete released his health care plan. It's just a public option, but he calls it Medicare for all who want it. And, of course, he makes a big deal about, uh, I don't want to take away your choice, bro. And Bernie Sanders does. Elizabeth Warren does. Like, come on. I'm I'm pro-choice to get screwed over by a rapacious, unnecessary mafia middleman. And they're not. They're against the mafia stealing from you. I'm for it if you want it. Hey, if you want it, it's your choice. So, anyway, uh, he went on CNN, and he prepared to, or he proceeded, I should say, to do a smear attack against the supporters of Medicare for All. Healthcare, uh, the number one issue on the minds of many uh, Democratic voters. You introduced your new Medicare for all who want it, healthcare plan today, that's what you call it. It includes a public government option uh, for healthcare or lets people keep their private insurance if they want to. Now, you wrote in a Washington Post op-ed quote, with my plan, we can achieve universal healthcare and a public alternative without raising taxes on the middle class. I've always said that anyone who lets the words Medicare for all escape their lips should tell us just as plainly how they plan to get there. You seem there to be accusing some of your rivals of not being upfront about how they intend to pay for Medicare for All. Uh, Stephen Colbert earlier this week seemed to suggest uh, that Senator Elizabeth Warren wasn't being upfront. You know, Senator Warren is known for being straightforward and was uh, extremely evasive when asked that question, and we've seen that repeatedly. Uh, I think that if you are proud of your plan and it's the right plan, you should defend it in straightforward terms. And I think it's uh, puzzling that when everybody knows the answer to that question of whether her plan and Senator Sanders' plan will raise middle-class taxes is yes. Why you wouldn't just say though so and then explain why you think that's the better way forward? Our plan does not require raising middle class taxes. It does create a way for everybody to be covered, and I think that's what most Americans want. Look, people are used to uh, Washington politicians not giving straight answers to simple questions, but at a time like this on an issue this important, that's exactly what we need. Your health care proposal seems to share a lot with uh, that being proposed by former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, how are they different? Why would yours be better? Well, first of all, I don't think that it's enough to simply build on the ACA. Uh, Certainly the ACA was a leap forward, and we should be thankful that the Obama administration delivered that. But we know that far too many Americans are finding that they still can't get good insurance, or when they have insurance, affordability remains an enormous problem. We're seeking to attack the, the problem of affordability from several angles, insurance, but also looking at what's driving those costs in the first place. And... Uh, I really do believe the public alternative will be better. It could well be the glide path that leads to a Medicare for All environment. I just don't think it's a good idea to command Americans to adopt Medicare for All, whether they want it or not. Under my plan, if you prefer to keep your private insurance, you can. I just think that ours will be better, and if we're right, then Americans will decide that for themselves. Except 
by its very nature, when you leave the for-profit health insurance companies in control of the insurance market, they will do everything they can to push off the sick people and put them on the public option, and they will try to keep all the healthy people, and so they will be able to make more profit. So you end up overburdening the public system, and you end up having a situation where um, the quality goes down. So you do, basically, what ends up happening is you have this, like, really watered-down, terrible, half-measure, half-assed attempt at uh, a public option, and then you have the for-profit health insurance companies still uh, being a rapacious mafia middleman robbing everybody, but they're, they try their best to only take the healthy people and, um, you know, kind of pawn off the sick ones to the government plan. So you can't have this, the existence of uh, the public and the private in this instance, because the real issue is the whole notion of profit for health insurance. That whole notion, that whole concept is incredibly problematic in the same way that, you know, uh, Pete would understand, hey, private prisons are problematic, right? Like, we shouldn't have private prisons because that's a perverse incentive structure to make profit off of locking people up because you're incentivizing then locking more people up. He would understand that argument. He understands it's crazy to talk about choice uh, and having a private fire department option. But for some reason with health insurance, because he has this the, uh, the bias towards the status quo, he's like, well, what do you mean? I want to take away choice. Again, choice to get price gouged by a rapacious mafia middleman. That's what that is. Okay, now, um, when he says, basically, his plan is, quote, that's what most Americans want, but that's not true. Seventy percent of the country wants Medicare for all. Even in the polls that are the least charitable to Medicare for all, it's over 50 percent. So Americans want Medicare for all. When you tell Americans, hey, do you want a Medicare for all system, um, but it takes away your private health insurance? The poll drops to, no, we don't want that. But then as soon as you clarify, but you get to keep your doctor in your hospital, it goes back up again and goes well over 50%. So every poll that's honest in their framing of the question, Americans want Medicare for all. Every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer system. That's Medicare for all. So when he says that, it's just not true, and he's being misleading. And I think he knows that it's not true, but he doesn't care because he's a, he's a politician and he's playing a game. Uh, and this isn't a game we should be playing because, you know, lives are at stake here. And then finally, and this is the main point of what he said there, oh, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren was being evasive when asked the question about whether or not middle class taxes will go up. Now, was she being evasive? Yes. However, the reason why Elizabeth Warren and Bernie are evasive when that question is asked is because it's a bullshit question. It is incredibly misleading in the way that it's framed, where what they're doing is they're fishing for a little soundbite that they can then use to clobber them over the head. And that little soundbite is if you say, yes, taxes will be raised, it'll be taken out of context, they'll run it on headlines, and they'll try to make everybody believe that they want regular Americans to pay more. When, of course... The real situation is they are eliminating all of the private taxes that you have to pay 
What are private taxes? Premiums, co-pays, deductibles, which amount to a higher percentage of your income than the public tax increase would under Medicare for All system. They want to they wanna act like, oh, they said raise taxes on the middle class, full stop. Like that's the end of the conversation, and you're going to pay more, average Joe and Jane. And that's why they're evasive, because they're trying to avoid the media being incredibly misleading and taking them out of context. So as I've advised all these candidates, not personally, but just on the show, the way you respond to that question is when they say, do you want to raise middle-class taxes? You say, no. And they're going to react like, what? And that's when you say, very simply, I'm eliminating private taxes, premiums, co-pays, and deductibles that you pay to your unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit health insurance company, eliminating those. No more private taxes, and I'm raising public taxes, but the average American will net save a tremendous amount of money. And by the way, everything will be covered, as opposed to now you pay more in private taxes and you don't get as much. That's it. That's all you say. So, but that's the point. The point is the reason why they're evasive is because it's a totally bullshit question that they're trying to take them out of context over. So, in my opinion, you have every right to be evasive if it's a question that should have been asked. <laughs> you know, like, if it's a question that's utterly ridiculous, it's like, hey, man, when did you stop beating your wife? It's this old canard. When did you stop beating your wife? What? <laughs> like, what? No. The trick is in the question. So don't get mad at my response. I'm going to respond however I want to respond because I'm dealing with dishonest actors here who are malicious. So, yeah, I'm going to respond however I want to respond. And I'm going to handle it the way I should handle it. And then you get, oh, you're being evasive. No, the problem is the question was bullshit up front, Mayor Petey. Jesus Christ, man. So really, he's the one that's incredibly misleading, as he's accusing them of being misleading. Now, by the way, don't give Elizabeth Warren too much credit. Her specific plan that she released that she's calling Medicare for All never mentions single payer and uses the weasel words access to health care. So it's not as good as the Jaya Paul bill. It's not as good as the Bernie Sanders bill. And there are questions as to how she would implement it. But having said that, there's a very specific and obvious and honest reason as to why they sound evasive when they're asked that shitty question. It's because the question is designed to mislead the American people. So it requires more than a one-word answer. It requires an actual explanation. Okay? So when they're trying to put you in a corner, the fact of the matter is sometimes I'm a little too thoughtful to react like that. Okay, we need to actually explain it, and it takes more than three seconds. How terrible is Mayor Pete? There was a time when he was pretending to be more like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. There was a time when he was doing that. And then he realized pretty quickly, oh, there's no lane for me there. So now, all of a sudden, he's going full centrist goon. And it shows you he doesn't believe in anything. He's just trying to find a path to get elected. That's it. He doesn't actually believe in anything. He believes in Mayor Pete becoming president, and that's it. Okay. Let's make fun of Tim Ryan. 
So presidential candidate Tim Ryan, who is somehow still in the race, even though he said, I'm suspending my campaign, and it was like a month ago, um, and he's polling at like 1%. He spoke to Jake Uger, and um, he gave a really cringeworthy answer on a question about Medicare for All. Let's say that uh, uh, Warren or Sanders wins, just for a second, okay? And you're in Congress, and they say, Tim, I need your vote on Medicare for All. What do you do? I would not, not if it's taken private insurance away. I think if we build the alternative system, let people get in over time if they like it, let it compete with the private insurance. Uh, and as I said, I think this is a very risky proposition. Um, you look at the number of union people in these industrial states, they like their health insurance. They've negotiated it. They've sacrificed wages for it. And, and I think us going in there saying, we know you really like it, and we know your wages are down, and the whole world's collapsing around you, but we got a better idea for you. I, that's, that's a loser in my mind. You, you know they, they have insurance. They, they'd have the Medicare insurance rather than the private insurance. You, you think they still would prefer their private insurance even though it covers less? Here's what I'm saying. This is a burden of hand, okay? And people don't trust politicians. They don't trust Washington. Democrats, Republicans. So any politician saying, we're going to take what you like best in your life, the most security you have in your life is your health insurance, we're going to force you to get rid of that. That's not a winner. Who has ever said that their health insurance company is their, the thing that's most secure to them? Like, this is the thing that they hold dear. I'm sure they've said that about their doctor. Not at all about their health insurance company. Listen, what they are arguing for is the right to be price gouged by a mafia. Let me repeat that. They're arguing for the right to be price gouged by a mafia. An unnecessary middleman. That's what he's arguing for. Now, by the way, I found it hilarious when he was like, you know, people don't trust politicians. That's right. They don't trust politicians like you, who keep telling us better things aren't possible. They don't trust politicians like you because they think you're doing the bidding of the for-profit health insurance companies. Because you are. Because you are. This old talking point of, like, unions have negotiated, bro, for, like, their private health insurance. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take it away from them? That talking point has to die because so many unions support Medicare for All. By the way, you know what else would happen? If you have Medicare for all, you take the cost of health insurance off the back of the business, and then the unions can negotiate with the businesses for higher wages. So you can get the same effective pay, and instead of the money that was going to your for-profit health insurance, you can get that back now as pay, so you would get a, a pay increase, and you'd also have your Medicare for all insurance, which you're paying less through taxes and getting more, by the way. You know, all these health insurance plans, private health insurance plans, are more restrictive by definition because Medicare for All covers everything, including vision and dental. So, I mean, it's just, he's a mess. He's trying to portray himself as like, I'm the pro-worker candidate. And it's like, but all the things you're for are not pro-worker. You're not for the things that would massively help workers. Bernie Sanders is. So what a joke of a candidate. And then... um the most important point to make about this is as follows. This is why primary elections are so important, guys. Because the fact of the matter is, Bernie Sanders is going to have to fight 
his own party to try to get his agenda implemented. And, you know, thankfully, he's made crystal clear he's ready for that fight, and he's going to do it. He's going to use the bully pulpit. He's going to do rallies in the states of these vulnerable Democrats and go after them. He's going to let them know, hey, you either vote for my plan here, which is for the American people, or you lose your political career. So he's going to do the right thing, but he's running into a freight train, guys. And, of course, that's the Republicans who are going to block everything come hell or high water, but it's also the centrist corporate Democrats. So this is why primaries are so important, and this is why you have to get involved. By the way, I highly recommend, go check our revolution. Go check the Justice Democrats' website and see who's running, see who's involved. For example, I know that um, Paula Jean Swearingen is running again. And, of course, I wish her well, and I hope that you guys, if you're in West Virginia, definitely support her, definitely get involved. You have to keep your eye out, and you have to stay involved, because we need people who agree with the agenda in order to get the agenda passed. It's not just enough to get just a president. And guys like Tim Ryan have got to go, or they've got to be, they've got to be cowed. We've got to make them bend to our will. And then the second point is, um, this is why even if Bernie gets elected, we have to hit the streets. We have to get directly involved. We have to apply pressure to these politicians. There has to be a mass movement, and you have to think of it like the civil rights movement. Power concedes nothing. So we all got to get out there, and we all got to march on Washington, have a very clear things that we're fighting for. Hey, why are we marching? Well, we're all marching here for Medicare for all and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and a Green New Deal and legalizing marijuana. I mean, maybe you break it up a little bit here in terms of certain issues are focused on, but we got to do it. It's got to be done because they ain't going to concede anything unless they feel like they don't have a choice. Okay. All right, now it's Kamala. Everybody's getting a turn today. Everybody's getting a turn today. So Kamala Harris was asked about Medicare for All by Jank Uger, and she reiterated something that's patently untrue. Senator Harris, does your health care proposal eventually lead to complete Medicare for All? No, my health care proposal is a Medicare for All proposal, but what it does is it allows people choice. Because I've heard from too many people, they don't want their choice to be taken from them, and I don't want to take it. So under my Medicare for All proposal, they get the choice of a private Medicare for All plan or a public Medicare for All plan. So I know there's a 10-year transition period at the end. Is there still private insurance? Yes, if they play by our rules. But our rules include that they cannot charge copays, they cannot charge deductibles, and they have to be in the plan in a way that they also are not jacking up the prices as they've been doing. But if they play by the rules, they play. All right, thank, thank, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Senator. There's a lot of, like, subtext there stuff that's really interesting. Like, it appears like she didn't want to be talking to Jank. She knows who Jank is. And she's, like, really uncomfortable with the fact that she's talking to him. And she has this kind of, like, condescending look on her face. 
and then her handler there who's like, okay, 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 we're done here, we're done, we're gonna move on, move on. Um, so of course the misleading thing is that she keeps calling her plan Medicare for All. It's not. It doesn't fit the definition. It's just not that. Medicare for All is single payer. Single payer means there is a single insurer, that insurer being the government, which means health, in, health care becomes a right that's free at the point of service. Funded by taxes, but free at the point of service. So that's what Medicare for All is. If you're saying, oh, Medicare for All, but, you know, choice, public uh, or private or whatever, that's not Medicare for All. That, then there's not a single insurer. You're leaving the for-profit health insurance companies largely in control of the marketplace here. So that's not. That's just a public option. So, again, incredibly misleading. And the thing that's so frustrating about this is Kamala is still to this day trying to leech off the popularity of Medicare for All while not supporting it. She know, she's seen the polls. 70% support Medicare for All. She's seen the giant movement now on this. She's trying to take that issue, pretend like she's running with it while gaslighting everybody. And that's really, really, really disingenuous. Because, again, at least you look at somebody like Klobuchar and she's like, no, I don't believe in that, and I'll tell you what I'm in favor of. At least there's honesty there. Here, there's, it's not honest. It's dishonest. It's not Medicare for All, and she's pretending like it is Medicare for All. And then again, I know I've made this point so many times, but this is the framing that I want every Democratic candidate to take. And Bernie, I hope you're watching. Probably not, but I hope he is. <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, when they say, oh, we need to maintain choice, your response to that needs to be the choice of getting price gouged by a mafia. That's the choice you're arguing for. That's the framing, guys, because that's really what they're arguing for. I want you to have the choice of getting ripped off. That should be how uh, the Medicare for All proponents counter to the, ar to the argument of choice. That's exactly what you have to say. Oh, you want the freedom to get ripped off? That's what you want? You want the choice of having a mafia price gouge you? Because that's what it is. That's what the industry is. So... Um, it's interesting what happens when these candidates are asked serious questions. All right, now we'll go to Billiard de Blasio. Yeti man, Billiard de Blasio. Actually wrong. We're not going to do that one yet. Um... Uh, Fox News hosts getting into it. So you're about to see here what happens when you make sense on Fox News. Um, this is host Jessica Tarlov, and she's going to get piled on by a bunch of cackling hyena idiots. And really, you know, I've seen this clip now three times. It's like the Twilight Zone. It's like you have the last reasonable person on earth, and then a bunch of, like, overconfident, cocky morons. Take a look. 
Security Advisor was speaking last night um, and had some thoughts on this, which I re would recommend everyone look at. He's obviously extremely concerned about this. And the second thing, which I think is important to bring up in any conversation about Iran, is the nuclear deal that we pulled out of. And there are many people, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, that had confirmed that the Iranians were not violating the terms of the deal. And we need to be considerate of the fact that we may not be in this situation whatsoever. And I understand the asymmetric warfare argument. But that if we had stayed in that deal, that we would not be That's dealing. That's a ridiculous argument. It is a ridiculous. It is argument. a ridiculous well, argument. And when you say that they were, we weren't allowed to inspect any That's facilities. Not, they were not. Where we thought things were going on. They are to designate where we could look, and it wasn't any well, time anywhere. The deal is worthless. I will. I just want to add this. I we got to where we are right now with Iran because of the deal, because of the billions of dollars in money sent to Iran, that and was, the billions of dollars in business uh, that all these other nations can do with. Iran right. and funding terrorism in the region. That's we're how turning, we got here. I, we're turning money that we had taken is not the same as handing them cash to commit terror. It's handing wow. money. And, and by the way, money was not right. supposed to be given there to Iran, are, Jessica. It was supposed to be money. We could all agree that some it of it has not, been spent on terrorism, right, right. Buck? Absolutely. I mean, I think everything we can get there. there. But I, no matter where that cash is, there are, in John Kerry, there are so, we'll come back so many officials on record saying that Iran was complying with the deal. Because there was nothing in it. That was not true, Melissa. You think all these countries would have been in that deal, but we could do this all day. All right. okay. We could, but we can't. That's hard to watch. The people who, who sound the most confident there and they're like shouting her down have no idea what they're talking about. None whatsoever. They called it, quote, ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument to say that pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal led to this, this situation that we're in right now. But that is, that's exactly what it is. See, in the minds of the idiot Fox hosts, they think America is right by definition in these conflicts. So they're working backwards from that. They're not allowing themselves to look at it objectively because they think in order to be pro-American, you need to always be on the team of America, and therefore you have to rationalize and excuse everything that we do that's wrong or bad or unjust or stupid or contradictory or whatever it may be. So just so everybody knows, that deal, yes, it was verified over a dozen times by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that Iran was following the agreement to a T. Now, the counter-argument from the idiots is, oh, yeah, but then what about the places that weren't inspected? Okay, so in other words, it is impossible to craft a deal where they say, it's a good deal. Because no matter what, they'll turn around and say, oh, yeah, well, maybe there's places that weren't inspected. What's your evidence for that? There's, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence at all to say, oh, there's places that uh, weren't inspected. No, all of the sites, like, what do you think? The entire international community sat around and said, okay, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're only going to look at, like, 10% of the places where they have nuclear energy. No, the entire world. That deal, if anything, was overly restrictive on Iran. There's so many checks so often. I mean, the IAEA was up their ass. They had very strict limits. Okay, you can only enrich uranium to a point of uh, power for the power greater for research, and we're incredibly stringent. 
and the breakaway time was so long, there's no evidence whatsoever that they had a nuclear weapons program. So basically what the Foxos are saying is, no matter what happens, all we're going to counter with is, oh yeah, but maybe there's some places where they're not following the deal. So it doesn't matter how strict the deal is, and it was as strict as humanly possible, they're always going to say that. So there, there's nothing you could say, because they just don't trust the Iranians at all, and they don't even trust it when it's verified at all. So there's nothing the U.S. could have done, or there's nothing the world could have done, where they would have turned around and said, you know what, awesome, it worked out here. Then also the lie about, like, uh, we gave them billions of dollars. And, again, credit to Jessica Tarlov because she turns around and goes, no, that's money that we stole from them. It was their money and under the deal. I mean, could you imagine a deal like this, guys? Under the deal, we give them back their own money in exchange for the international community regulating them nonstop when it comes to, um, you know, nuclear energy. So you – that deal is, like, so biased in favor of us because it's, like, as a matter of principle in the first place, why should you be able to just jack our money? But they did. They jacked Iran's money, and then they, oh, sure, we'll give it back, but only if X, Y, and Z. These conditions are met. You let us go in there nonstop and regulate and make sure you don't have a nuclear weapons program, so on and so forth. Even after the U.S. pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, they kept following it for months. And then finally, when they were like, okay, we're not going to follow it anymore, um, the U.S. turned around and goes, ah, aggression. What? We were, we were aggressive to them. Are you insane? So it's, it's so frustrating. And um, there's no doubt we wouldn't be in this situation if it wasn't for the actions of the U.S. guys. Something they'd never tell you on Fox News. We're waging an economic warfare against Iran. Uh, we're waging economic war against Iran. We're, we're sanctioning things going into that country that's wildly illegal. The International Court of Justice, which is the top court at the UN, told the U.S., you stop sanctioning medicine going into Iran. You can't do that. That impacts civilian uh, you know, population centers massively. You can't do it. It's illegal under international law. Stop. So what do we do? We pulled out of the court, and we chastised them, and we kept sanctioning the uh, medicine going into Iran. Are they going to tell you that on Fox News? They're not going to tell you that. And if anybody were to bring it up, what they'd say is... <laughs> Well, what do you want to do? You want to let them keep uh, sponsoring terrorism? Which leads to the final point, which is they argue there, and this is how you know they're just idiots who are fucking regurgitating whatever propaganda they hear. Uh, yeah, uh, number one state sponsor terror. Number one state sponsor terror. Saudi Arabia is clearly the number one state sponsor of terror. Are you insane? The 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia right this second is funding Sunni extremist militias, Salafist militias on the ground in Yemen and Syria. Those are jihadists. That's who they are. Acting like Iran is the number one state sponsor of terror. Oh, please. So um, what's stunning to me is not even the debate they had here, because I was surprised that one host was making sense. What surprised me is... Is this microphone fucked up? Sorry, guys. Um, what surprised me is the over-the-top, obnoxious tone where everybody who's dead wrong is so convinced that they're right. Like, the idea, what do you mean? Obviously, the U.S. is right, and obviously, you know, Iran's the problem here, and obviously, pulling out of the Iran deal didn't lead to escalation with Iran. It, it's almost escalation by definition. 
we, the U.S., are pulling out of the deal. And that's not escalation or provocative. And that's not going to lead to further problems. Of course it does! Of course it does! Of course it does! They try to have their cake and eat it, too, where we act offensively, we ruin diplomacy, and then we turn around and go, ha! I can't believe they're acting offensively and ruining diplomacy. What a joke. stories and we got to divert back to um, Biden here for just a little bit. So Joe Biden has um, slowly but surely become one of the worst campaigners I've ever seen. It's a little surprising because I remember back when he debated Sarah Palin in 2008 and when he debated Paul Ryan in 2012, um, he was really good in one-on-one debates with Republicans. Uh, He's not a terrible campaigner. But now, as he's gotten older, um, and as the political climate around him has shifted in a more populous left direction, he's kind of just been unmasked as a standard, centrist, corporate, milquetoast Democratic candidate. And um, what's fascinating here is, I just want you to, as you watch this, think about what would happen in a general election of Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Because what you're going to see here from Biden is just, I mean, it's just sad. There's just no life there. He's not saying anything. It's just platitudes and Trump bad and racism bad. It's just like so banal and stale and there's no life in it. So let's take a look and then we'll come back and discuss. We must defeat Donald Trump, period. And stop his abuse of power. We have a president who traffics in the ugliest forces the ugliest forces in our nation's history. In both clear language and code, President Trump has fanned the flames of white supremacy in this nation. When Charlottesville occurred, and there were decent people standing there saying, we will not go along with this hate, and he was asked when a young woman was killed, he was asked to characterize what happened. He said, quote, there are fine people on both sides. No president, and more than a boo, it's serious, more, no president has ever said anything like that, save the possibility of before the Civil War. Ladies and gentlemen, in doing so, he has signed a moral equivalence between those neo-Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, white supremacists, preaching hate and white supremacy, and those who are opposing it. At that time, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America. And we are in the battle for a soul of America. That's what's at stake. This country can overcome four years of Donald Trump with great difficulty, but eight years, eight years of Trump, I believe, will forever change the character and nature of the country we are. America is unique in all the history. It's an idea, an idea. American creed, all Men and women are created equal. We've never fully lived up to that. 
but we've never, ever, ever walked away from it. It's genius. Is that every generation of Americans, every generation, has opened wider and wider access for more and more people. That's why it's never gathered dust in our history books. We need a president who, once again, values honesty, decency, treating everyone with dignity and respect, leaving no one behind, giving everyone a fair shot, and understanding that there's something bigger than our individual selves. It's Hillary all over again. I'm sorry. That's what it's become. There was a time, if you had asked me before he hops in the, he hopped in the, in the race, oh, how do you think Biden would fare against Trump? I tell you, and I said it, I definitely think he'd do better than Hillary did because I was going off of the information that we had at the time, which was the 2008 walloping of Sarah Palin and the 2012 uh, destruction of uh, Paul Ryan. So even putting ideology aside, um, he, he's good enough to handle somebody like Trump because he's got the I'm middle-class Joe type thing going on. But no, when, when you give him the stage on his own and you do it now in this political climate, and it's clear that time has not been kind to Joe Biden in many respects, what you get is the same, you know, milk toast, warmed over platitudes that you saw with Hillary Clinton, which could not generate excitement because, and here's the main point, guys. What does he believe in? What does he believe in? What's he really fighting for? You go ask Andrew Yang what he believes in. You go ask Bernie Sanders. You go ask Tulsi Gabbard. You get answers like that. And everybody knows. Go to even people who don't support those candidates. Hey, what's Tulsi's thing? She wants to end the regime change wars. Hey, what's Yang's thing? Oh, universal basic income. He cares deeply about that. What's Bernie's thing? How much time you got? Medicare for all, free college, fighting back against income inequality, so on and so forth. Um, you know, you ask uh, about Elizabeth Warren. Oh, she wants to crack down on Wall Street. You know, that's her thing. She wants to go after Wall Street. She's big on um, economic reform, domestic economic reform. These people are bringing something to the table. Agree or disagree with them. What is Biden bringing to the table other than I want to be president? This is the same criticism I had of Hillary is that you, you don't really believe in anything. You believe in Hillary Clinton becoming president. And so you're just trying to say the right things to, to maneuver yourself into that position. But it's all smoke and mirrors. I mean, really, you think that speech is going to generate excitement? I mean, we're talking about uh, America's an idea. All people are created equal. We haven't lived, always lived up to that, but we never stopped trying to move towards that. You know, I believe in honesty and decency. And I believe in, I'm for good things, and I'm against bad things, and we should break down the barriers, and we're stronger together, and here's another fucking platitude sandwich to eat. Even the stuff like, and he did this with his launch ad. Remember his launch ad? What was it? At Charlottesville, there were really bad people, and they're racist, and I'm against racism. That's the bar you've set for yourself, racism bad? Congratulations, Joe. <laughs> obvious. It's so insanely obvious. But what are you going to do about it? I'll tell you what he did in the past. He worked with Strom Thurmond and segregationists and then praised them and said, you know, how reasonable they are. And guess what? He worked with them on the issue of segregation. He, he wasn't in favor of uh, desegregated busing. So he just does what's politically convenient at the time. Ooh, remember back um, in the 1990s and it was tough on crime was the thing at the time and he was, he attacked uh, you know, Republicans from the right and said they're not tough enough. So this is this is Joe Biden. 
ultimate political insider. Now, he would be up against Donald Trump. Say what you want about Donald Trump, and I got a lot to say about him. You know what he's got? A rabid, passionate, dedicated base. Look at a Trump rally compared to a Biden rally. You tell me who's got the enthusiasm, and then you tell me whether or not Biden should be the nominee in 2020. All right, next. So a little presidential uh, campaign update here. Yeti man Bill de Blasio, Billiard de Blasio, Uh, He has dropped out of the race. He announced it on Morning Joe on MSNBC. Well, a few days ago I called uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. I wanted him to come on the show to talk about a speech uh, that he was giving a few days before in Philadelphia to the AFL-CIO. And he told me that he already had plans to be here Friday and uh, found out this morning you were coming. I thought you were just coming because... Because I like you. Well, you like me yeah. and me and like being on the show. Like hanging out with you. Exactly. Hey, yeah. uh, talking Red Sox. But you actually have a very important announcement to make. Yeah, and Joe, let me just say up front, um, these last months I've had an extraordinary experience going all over this country. And, and I want to tell you, I actually think it, it's a lot better country than what we often see portrayed. Uh, there's a lot more unity out there. There's a lot more hope. Uh, folks don't like this moment of division and anger. They want to get by it. I'm finding that people of all ideologies want to get by it. There's a lot of activism. I think there's going to be extraordinary voter turnout. So there's a really encouraging things happening in this country. And, and you mentioned that speech in Philadelphia. I went to talk to working people about some of the issues that I hear from them are really front and center in minds. Anxiety about the future of work and will people have livelihoods? I'm talking about this automation issue Mm -hmm. and the fact that we have no national strategy to deal with the onslaught of automation, which literally could take away tens of millions of American jobs in the next couple of decades. So I'm proposing a plan to do something about it, to really take away the tax cuts that corporations get right now to automate jobs away. In fact, put a robot tax on big corporations to make them have to compensate so we can retrain, reemploy American workers. And that kind of message really resonates with working people in this country. So uh, getting out there, being able to hear people's concerns, address them with new ideas, it's been an extraordinary experience. But I have to tell you at the same time, I, I feel like uh, I've contributed all I can to this primary election, and uh, it's clearly not my time, so I'm going to end my presidential campaign, uh, continue my work as mayor of New York City, and I'm going to keep speaking up for working people and for a Democratic Party that stands for working people. And I'll, I'll just say this. I, I talked to a lot of folks, including a lot of labor union members, who really don't feel the Democratic Party has their back right now, and that's a lot of the story of 2016, I think. Uh, Democrats not being clear, strong for working people. A lot of working people stayed home. Some of them even drifted away. Uh, we have a chance to get it right in 2020, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about a lot going forward. Uh, whoever our nominee is, let's make sure we're speaking to the hearts of working people. 
and they know we're on their side. And if we do that, we're going to win. If we don't, this is a, an election that could go the other way. Yeah, but see, Bill, that that's the problem with you, uh, and I don't mean that in you know a particularly vicious way. Um, but here you go talking about like, well, we lost working people. We got to get working people back. Okay, so endorse Bernie Sanders. Oh, oh, you didn't do that. Oh, you didn't do. It. I wonder why. Weird. It's almost like in 2016 when you actively endorsed Hillary over Bernie. It's almost like you're being a political actor and you're doing calculations and you're not being upfront and honest with everybody. And that's the thing. So Bill de Blasio in the debates actually didn't do a bad job in the sense that he kind of aligned himself with Bernie Sanders and he made some pretty strong arguments. And um, But the thing is, that lane at this moment is obviously taken and it's taken by somebody who's way more sincere and authentic and has the record to back it up. Bill de Blasio has a bit of a mixed record. Um, but... He, listen, he had some good ideas. He just said right there, I never even heard that idea before. Like a robot tax on corporations where if they move towards automation, you tax them, and then you redistribute that money that you tax to the people who would have been the workers at that, those places. That's actually an idea that, like, Stephen Hawking kind of alluded to back in the day, where automation could either destroy us or it could bring about much more, you know, leisure time, free time, and, and make the world a better place. Um, so I don't – it's not that I dislike him. He actually was taking a lane in the race that wasn't horrendous, but it was full, and it's definitely not his time. And I don't know if it'll be his time in the future because the little things he did here and there that contradicted his, like, I'm, you know, Mr. Lefty myself approach kind of ruins his credibility with people who are paying attention. And um, I hope that it, instead of waffling and instead of, you know, sometimes creeping his way over to agree with the establishment, he, uh, he actually – has the courage of his convictions, and does do lefty stuff from here on out. So, you know, he should have endorsed Bernie Sanders, but then again, I'm not losing sleep over it because he has, like, 1% support anyway, and nobody's listening to him. All right, final story of the day. Let's make fun of these candidates who were dancing. <laughs> Wait, where the fuck is the video? Please tell me I have it. Okay, boom, here we go. So the presidential candidates are at the Iowa Steak Fry, and uh, they're trying to get votes in the goofiest way possible. I know it's really boring to, like, knock on doors and talk to people and do rallies and town halls and listen to people's concerns. You know, what Bernie's been doing recently is having people tell them what's the worst, uh, most crazy medical bill you've ever had. And he's gotten so many responses. It's absolutely mind-blowing. You know, people have been showing up to his rallies. One guy said, I'm going to kill myself because I have $100,000 in medical debt. Bernie literally talked him out of that. I mean, this stuff is heartbreaking and incredibly important. Um, so while Bernie's going around the country, you know, trying to um, save it, uh, take a look at what some of the other candidates are doing.
does that work on? Who's like, you know, I was on the fence, but when I saw Klobuchar dance, you know, Mayor Pete's uh, synchronized dancing, <laughs> he wasn't there, to be fair. It was just his supporters who were doing the synchronized dancing. But, like, and listen, maybe I'm here I might be a little bit, you know, a victim of my own perception because maybe there are people out there who are like, yeah, fun-loving and cool, want to have a beer with them, totally. That makes them more electable and likable. I'm sure there are people like that out there because it's not like everybody who's voting is ideologically consistent and they're going through the policies with a fine-tooth comb. No, some people vote on totally arbitrary metrics, including stuff like this that may impact them in one direction or another. But, um, I mean, listen, guys, I don't want to be too much of a buzzkill here. If you have a candidate who's busting ass and talking about policy nonstop and doing everything they can to help people out and they have a great record, if you got all those things in a row, then sure, every now and then you have some fun. It's no big deal. You know, it's kind of the reason why I threw in that question at the end uh, to Bernie when I interviewed him about Michael Jordan versus LeBron James. Because, yeah, why not throw one little funsies thing in there because we're so serious all the time and I was just asking you about all this policy stuff. So I get it. You could have some fun. But um, <clears throat> I guess it's these particular candidates who get under my skin a little bit because they're not offering real solutions. And so this is kind of like a substitute for offering real solutions. I, I won't get you Medicare for all for real, but maybe I'll dance in a weird way. All right, y'all. That'll do it for the show today. I love you, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.